You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. I love this description. Ready? Big mouth, gnarly teeth, lure bobbing from its head, endless nightmares. <laughs> yeah, it is the stuff of nightmares. What can they teach us? It, 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 it defies logic. I, I, we have PhDs in reproductive biology. Like, I've never seen this. I've never seen this in a textbook. Every Mind species... blown this week, Chris. Mind blown. Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Anglerfish, Angie. I was telling you, I cannot believe it has taken us 302 episodes to get to this insane creature. Like, insane. Happy Halloween. <laughs> yes, yes. I love this description. Ready? Big mouth, gnarly teeth, lure bobbing from its head, endless nightmares. <laughs> yeah, it is a stuff of nightmares. I mean, it absolutely is. Uh, yes, it's this angry looking deep sea, cranky, incredible, incredible fish that we're covering today. And it's going to be so much fun. And I agree that I'm surprised it took us this long to cover the angler fish and all of its unique weirdness. <laughs> yeah, no. And, and for, I mean, I, one of the, the whenever I, I think of this fish, I always go back to Finding Nemo. Such a great film. I think one of the best that Pixar has ever done. And that scene where uh, the dad and, and Dory are at the bottom of the ocean, and they, he's like, "Oh, look at the bioluminescence of the the angle the angler fish, you know, that's that attracts them." And then you have this horrific looking fish with these super sharp teeth, which have a purpose. Uh, we're going to get to, but I always think oh, of that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Another fun description is. Uh, it resembles a nightmarish fang potato with a reading lamp on top. <laughs> <laughs> it swims like a potato. I mean, we'll yes. get to that. Oh, gosh. So uh, fun. So uh, fun. And, and I would say Angie and I both this week were blown away at the mating strategy. You will not believe this. I cannot believe I've never heard of this. I have a PhD in animal reproduction. I've never heard of this mating strategy. I didn't know it existed. <laughs> It is straight up crazy. It's and insane. it's fun. It definitely gives a new meaning to the term love connection. <laughs> yes, that's a good way of thinking of it. Okay, 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 okay. But it was like what uh, also Reaper known as sexual parasitism. But there you go, the I'm parasitism go, part. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go a very freaky deaky uh, love connection. And we had some fun jokes about our, our our past with that one. But anyways, before we get going real quick, because there's so much to cover, there's so much physiology that is so radical, so out of this world. It, it's just nuts. It's nuts. Well, I mean, it, it lives in the Earth's most inhospitable habitat. I mean. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we know more about Mars than we do about the deep ocean. And I'm going to get into that. I'm going to get into that because that's really the deep dive Pun intended that I did this week. There you go. There you go. Yeah, there you go. You're teaching me. Uh, but real quick, thank you, Jill, 
for joining us on Patreon. So Hi, Jill. It's my neighbor, Jill. She, yeah. uh, We go on a lot of long walks with our dogs, and I always bounce ideas off of her. So thank you, uh, longtime listener and friend, Jill. We really appreciate it. Yes, and thank you so much. We're able to donate proceeds of our Patreon to these organizations we cover week in, week out, and also the advertising revenue that's kicking in now. So for those that notice, we are running ads now. The purpose we decided to do that was that way we're able to kick some money back to these organizations because what they're doing is so important to protect these species. And, you know, Angie and I have been doing this for now almost four years and we believe in this. We believe in fighting for these animals and telling these stories. So thank you. Okay. Now I think the fun part, I literally when i was doing my slides i was laughing and i and i always tell you oh good luck describing this species oh good luck describing this uh, no out of all of the species we covered unless you can see a picture of this thing i don't know how you describe this i, I know honestly it i mean besides saying angry looking not attractive big mouth gnarly teeth uh <laughs> it is it's very 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 unique but uh to be a little bit more professional about it, I will attempt to describe the anglerfish mm-hmm. just for, uh, I guess, kicks and giggles mm-hmm. uh, and to give you a visual if you're out there driving or on a run and you're not able to Google this thing. But And just a quick little sidebar is there are over 300 species of the anglerfish and Chris and I are going to be talking a lot in general about them because they do just have this wide range. But their colors are typically going to be from dark gray to dark brown because they live deep in the water uh, and they're usually scaleless and the body shape of the anglerfish is going to basically depend on where it lives. So if it lives in the pelagic zone, which is away from the seafloor versus the benthic zone, which is close to the seafloor, they're going to have a little bit different body shape. But I'll focus a little bit more on the benthic because I think that's more the classic where if you just mm-hmm. Google a an anglerfish, uh, it's going to pop up as this big round body with huge heads and with this giant mouth it's like crescent shaped that basically extends like half of the circumference of the head uh and inside this huge mouth are enormous teeth that are long and sharp and translucent uh they look like fangs and then they also angle inward uh, which is really helpful for them grabbing prey. We'll talk about that mm-hmm. nutrition. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the length of the teeth will vary depending on the species. They can be one to two inches, up to seven inches. And then, of course, the most famous feature of the anglerfish, which it's named after, is this modified fin ray, which is also known as the ilium or the esca, which is thin and long and narrow and juts out from the center of their head like a fishing pole Mm -hmm. and it's used to lure prey. And on the end of it is tissue that looks like prey or a bait or lure uh, and that they use to attract their food. And in several species of these anglerfish, especially the ones that live very down deep, 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 deep down, uh, will have bioluminescence on the tip of this esca, on the tip of their pole, basically. And it's like, yeah, it's like a fleshy growth and it just can, and they can move it. Mm-hmm. So this fishing pole that's sticking out of their forehead, if you, if you will, uh, can move 
up and down in all different ways to basically act as though it's prey that's moving to attract um, other predators, which then they eat. So pretty just, incredible. It, it looks like a swimming mouth. I mean, that's all it is. It is it, yes. It, yes. It's definitely, I mean, the pictures, like I said, I'm not really doing justice, yeah, but the mouth yeah. is like a, a, a a quarter of this thing, right? Yeah, like if easy, you picture yeah. like a circle and you take a, a whole quarter out, that's its mouth with these teeth. And then of course, little eyes. And then, um, you know, they have their uh, pectoral and tail fins, yeah. but small eyes. And then this just such unique, this, this fishing pole in the middle of their head, uh, right between their eyes, basically. Uh, it's just so silly. It looks oh, like they a are. goblin. I mean, it, yeah, there just... you go. It's happy Halloween. I mean, it's per mm -hmm. it's the perfect Halloween species. I mean, out of, and I'll make an admission. I normally don't watch lots of videos of the species we do. I just, I just read as much as I can and source all the information that we put out. But this one, I had to watch videos of it. I just, I absolutely had to. I was fascinated Yes. Well, Xander and I spent a lot of time watching uh, some videos this weekend because he was really impressed mm -hmm. too. Some of the really amazing videos that were put out, I think by N Noah. Noah. Or yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Noah was one of them. Yeah. They show uh, pictures of this anglerfish that has these long, uh, besides of course the, the uh, ilium in the middle mm -hmm. of their forehead, but scientists were really surprised that they also had all these dazzling long filament Mm -hmm. sticking mm -hmm. out from all of their bodies uh, almost like a like a jellyfish would or something and because a lot of the specimens that have been studied throughout the past couple hundred years are ones that have washed up on the beach mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and a lot of these dead specimens don't have these filaments right. uh, and so scientists believe that some of these might also bioluminesce uh, to attract uh, more prey species over and or mates which we'll talk a lot about that too when we get to reproduction how the bioluminescence can help attract mates as well yeah i mean it's it, and across the species i mean it's just ugh, they're fascinating and like you know the ones on the continental shelf that aren't the deep deep ones when you were talking about the the so what, what what is it called again? It's called the Ilium. 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 Okay. So the ones that live on the continental shelf, they don't bioluminesce, but they had them like like look like little worms, and they all have different structures to to fish, and they mm -hmm. sit there and they blend in, and then they're using these little uh, fishing poles, you know, per se, these natural fishing poles to get something up close, and then they just open that massive mouth, which we're going to get to and talk about hunting. So you have to look at pictures. I know everybody can probably imagine what they've seen it. If they've seen the movie Nemo or they know what kind of fish we're talking about, but these things are crazy. And now the sizes across the species, you do get some that are only eight inches long or 20 centimeters, but some of them can be up to four feet long or 1.2 meters weighing upwards of 110 pounds or 50 kilograms. So they can get big depending on the species. Now, what's funny, <laughs> this still blows me away with the reproduction. Many of the deep sea anglerfish, so talk about sexual dimorphism. The males are 10 times smaller than the females. And the scientist I was reading his notes, he said they have no other function than to reproduce. That's it. Yes, they don't have all the, they, they don't have the, 
Elysium or mm-hmm. uh, some of the even uh, the decorative um, filaments. Mm-hmm. They don't have, I mean, they, they're they just like the most Basic. simple fish. <laughs> yeah, some of them don't even have teeth. Some of them don't <laughs> eat. Yes. And we'll focus on that when we get to the, uh, the male reproductive biology of the anglerfish. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's the most. It's the most insane one we've we've covered yet. It by far, by far, that's the most insane reproductive strategy. We'll be talking about this for the next three hundred episodes. <laughs> Time any totally, crazy repro. Totally, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, God. you know, some of them live on the continental shelves, but a lot of them live in the deep sea. You're going to find these fish in every ocean, uh, up into near the Arctic, and just north of antarctic so they're not in the frozen frozen sea or close to the you know the antarctic shelf or anything but uh most every other ocean from the equator down my next way south of me in new zealand uh way north of you upwards around greenland i mean you're gonna find anglerfish everywhere everywhere but the but even the ones that are hanging out around the equator they're so deep that it's very cold where they're at yeah oh yeah dark no light yeah, uh, yeah. so they, they, they do well in the cold, but, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's, it, it's really fascinating that they're all over, right? They're yeah. very, um, cosmopolitan species. And ancient, but we will get there. We will get there. Now, why care about anglerfish? I'm just saying not only because they're ancient, but they, they're radical. Like even the paper you just recently sent me about some of the, uh, the immunology, and, and we'll get to that, I guess, when we get to repro. There's so much we can learn from them. Oh, yeah, Chris. There's so many mysteries that the anglerfish has like yet to show us and that we can learn about how how they survive in such deep, cold water, no light, uh, how they bioluminesce, which is different. We'll talk a lot about bioluminescence today because you can either create it yourself through an enzyme like a mm. firefly does, or you can have bacteria create it, which is actually what the anglerfish mm-hmm, does. Mm-hmm, and so different methods, a uh, lot to learn from their bioluminescence, a lot to learn about their uh, their immunoreproductive biology and, and how they're able to do this wacky reproductive strategy, this very unique love connection. <laughs> Literally, they connect. Um, so yeah, just, just such a, so cool. And, uh, and, but the other thing too that we don't really ever talk about on this show that often is that the anglerfish uh, can host up to different uh, fifty different parasites at a time, mm-hmm. and it includes larvas to also mature species. And when you think about a species that lives where it's super inhospitable and not mm-hmm. a lot of other species live, uh, they do create a home for some of these other um, other organisms to live on. On and live off of and things like that. And so mm-hmm. I think we don't know a ton about the role that they play because they are so understudied. And I know you're chomping at the bit to talk about uh, why it's uh, easier mm-hmm. to travel yeah. to uh, to space than it is yeah. to uh, the midnight zone or the actual, I think it's actually the um, Asbismal zone yeah, is where yep, they live, yep. right? Deep, deep, um, yeah. Deep, deep. So we're talking a, a thousand meters Plus, that's the midnight zone. And then the abysmal zone is 4,000 meters. So, yeah, I mean, that's just, it's it's incredible. And I and we're probably not going to be able to give it a good enough description uh, unless you either, like, pull up a map of it or uh, watch mm-hmm. some of these YouTube 
clips as Chris was talking about. So that's why I care because it's just, there's a lot to learn about this super underexplored area. Uh, and it is an area that although it's underexplored, it sometimes is still torn up by um, different types of uh, deep sea trawling. Yeah. So and deep sea mining and mm-hmm. things like that. So I, I, although it's not a well studied area, I think it's one that we should definitely pay attention to on this podcast. Yeah, no, we should look more into it for sure. And I think we need to do some more species if we can this going deep, deep in the ocean. I mean, it, it, it there's estimates that about 90% of the oceanic species are still not identified. What? I mean, yeah. 90%? Yeah, 90%. 90%. So I was I was on wow. NASA's website. I was on the NOAA website. So these are are all based in the United States, right? NASA and and NOAA and and some of the top uh, leading scientific scientific discovery, you know, uh, not only the planet Earth but beyond. And Right now, NASA is saying about 80% of the seafloor is unmapped and unexplored. 80%. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's, it's, they're saying even with all the technology that we have, I mean, we have satellites, right? But again, that's not going deep ocean. We have buoys. We now have underwater vehicles. I'm going to talk about exploration of like the Mariana Trench. Uh, so uh, we do have some idea, but NASA says we have better maps of the surface of Mars and the moon than we do of the bottom of the ocean that we, we know very, very, very little about the ocean. That's astonishing. Wow. Yeah. And about yeah. 93% of the ocean is the deep sea. Right. 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 So there's a lot that we don't know, know under there. And, you know, NASA's actually, I mean, they're, they are help funding some science in the oceans, especially with climate change and, and studying that. But, you know, they, they put it as like, for us, you know, terrestrial animals, we're on this thin layer of soil and mountains and stuff that we live on. But 99% of the living space on the planet is the oceans, is the world's oceans. You know, we just don't see it because we live on land. And digging a little bit deeper, like, cause I was, I was curious cause you always hear it like, Oh, we know more about Mars than we do about the deep ocean. And that's actually true because it's easier to send humans to space than in the deep oceans because of the pressure mm-hmm. of the ocean. So that's where I dug, I, I went down a little bit of a rabbit hole with that understanding how angler fish and all these these other animals that we find in the deepest parts of the ocean how they survive it the vacuum space it's very easy i know when we went to the moon like the moon lander it, it was like tin foil almost was the the outer layer of it it was so thin like you could definitely push a pen or a pencil through it they had to be very mm-hmm. very careful uh, because they were in the vacuum of space and they didn't need you know, they need protection of radiation. And that's not the capsule. I'm talking about the moon lander itself. You know, anyways, traveling in space is much easier. It's much easier to support human life than down there. So just to give you an idea of the pressure, okay, in the deep oceans, at, at sea level, we experience 14.7 pounds per square inch on our bodies. Now, the fluids in our bodies push back so with a similar force, so we don't feel it, right? But all of us that have gone swimming, have dived in the water, 
as soon as we go seven, eight, nine feet down, our ears start popping. We can start feeling the pressure. Anybody that that's actually a diver knows, you know, dealing with pressure and all of that. Okay. So for every 33 feet you go down in the ocean, it increases one atmosphere. One atmosphere is this 14.7 pounds per square, square inch. So if you go two atmospheres, that's close to 30 pounds per square inch of pressure on your body. So if that's 66 feet down in the ocean. Now, the Mariana Trench is 36,000 feet deep or close to 11,000 meters. So you can put the whole Mount Everest in there. And there's wow. still a couple miles above it. Yeah, that's it could still be a mile <laughs> under the ocean. Yeah. You know, that's wow. how deep it is. Yeah. And the pressure is 1,071 times the standard atmospheric pressure or 15,750 PSI, which is the biting force of a now crocodile, I think, something like that. So, <laughs> but it, basically, that's 15,000 pounds or close to eight tons pushing down on you if the human body, and they said like 50 jumbo jets on your chest. So that's why we, we, we can't survive down there. And we have, we've had difficulty making submersibles that could withstand that pressure and not implode. So that's why it's been so hard. But these animals that live there have adapted to it, right? They make it look easy. They're yeah. floating around with their little uh, esca ilciums or their anglers and mm -hmm. just and long filaments just floating around. And they don't mm -hmm. look like pancakes either. No, no, no. Well, and then it, it, it brought me up like the sperm whale. Mm -hmm. When they dive, one of the deepest diving whales, we have to do what's it, the beaked whale. They're the ones that go the deepest, but the deepest diving mammal. Sperm whales go up to 7,000 feet deep. That's 212 atmospheres. That's over 3,000 pounds per square inch on them. But we know from covering them many podcasts ago that their, their lungs collapse, right? Mm -hmm. So they're able to push all the air out of their body. Heart rate slows way down. Metabolism slows way down and they just dive deep and then use their clicks to find their, their food. So uh, look at pressures. One of the, the things that really hamper us, the other is light because if we can't see, you know, it's tough to explore these areas where, you know, NASA said in space, you can see forever, right? Just on and on and on and on. In the deep, deep ocean where there's no sunlight, you can only see maybe a few feet in front of you, but it depends on where you are in the ocean because if there's a lot of sediment, a lot of that light bounces back and it's really tough to see that deep. So the distance sunlight, this is what's interesting too, because this, this actually has an effect on the amount of food available in these deep zones. There's not a lot. We would think there is. There really isn't. It's it's a tough, tough, tough neighborhood down there. It's like, you know, high desert, I, you know, on land. But this euphotic zone, sunlight zone goes down to about 200 meters. And that's about as far as sunlight can penetrate. And that's where like tuna live and, you know, some of our shark species, things like that. A lot of our whale, dolphin species live in that zone. 
200 meters, you know, and that's 650 feet. So we know like the smaller whales and dolphins, a lot of fish, a lot of life there because there's sunlight. So that's where a lot of, you know, microorganisms, krill, all of the live there. Okay. Then you go from 200 meters down to 1000 meters in the twilight zone, which I think you were talking about. So the dysphotic zone, and that's where sunlight does leak through, but not a lot. So sometimes swordfish swim through there, squid, shrimp, things like that, smaller squid. But then when you get a thousand meters and deeper and you break, you broke it down to the abyss, the midnight, the abyss and the haddle zone where sunlight does not penetrate. This is totally darkness. So giant squid, anglerfish, some of these other species that we're discovering down there. Who knows what else is living down there that we haven't discovered yet. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, so that makes it really tough. So, you know, really quickly, the good the good stuff is, and, and I'm going to bring this home, is exploring the deep sea, the Mariana Trench. That's the deepest we can go. It was first identified in 1875, the HMS Challenger. They were plumb bobbing. They're the ones that, that measured it that deep, or, or they knew it was deep. And um, the first exploration was in 1960 in a diving bell that could withstand the pressure. So two explorers went down there. It took them five hours to get down to the bottom, and then they, they came back up in a diving bell-type apparatus. 2012, 10 years ago, James Cameron, the famous director who's – Avatar, Titanic, all of those. He dove in Challenger 2. That made a big, big splash in the media. Since then, it's picked up a lot. The deep sea exploration, the exploration of the Mariana Trench and some of these deeper parts of the oceans. So, you know, the, the, the stuff we're discovering down there, I mean, you think about it, there's no sunlight. So where's the energy? Where do these animals get their energy? Because a lot of, you know, the whole life cycle starts with the sun, with plants, phytoplankton, all of that stuff, right? So that's really, uh, scientists are being blown away by what we're discovering down there. I will say MIT is developing a small submersible called the Maku Niu, which costs like 700 USD, you know, US dollars, really cheap. And has cameras, other scientific equipment. It's it's actually making other countries be able to explore their coasts and their deep seas more. So there is technology on the way that is helping us understand the deep sea better. So that's that's the good news. But hopefully that makes a little sense on why it's so difficult to explore down there and, and what's going on. Well, absolutely, Chris. No, I think you did a great job. And the way that I picture it now, if they can make us basically a $700 submarine drone, mm -hmm, right, mm -hmm, that people mm -hmm. up above on a boat can control, it makes it more affordable to be able to start to learn more. Uh, but it, it, I think it's still going to be a slow going process just because of all these factors that you talked about. I mean, even looking for anglerfish videos, uh, there's not a ton of them mm -mm, mm -mm, uh, mm -mm. that are of actually recording what this, what this fish act their what their behavior is. And I found a couple studies from, uh, from NOAA, but still in general, we just don't have a lot to deal with, but data knowledge is power. So I think 
maybe the next five to 10 years, we will be able to learn more because I, I do think it's such an important underexplored, um, underfunded part of the world. And, uh, there's probably a lot of secrets that lie down there. I know they're finding really cool things about some of the creatures and we'll have to cover more of them on the podcast to do our due diligence, but species that are living off of the thermal vents mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. and just some really uh, wacky, bizarre for us, it seems like out of this world survival strategies. Yeah. 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 So I do think as, uh, as uh, biologists and scientists, there's a lot, there is a lot to be learned from how they how they live down there and how they survive yeah 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 well and and just to remind the listeners because we're going to jump into evolution here in a second these are the creatures that survived the mass extinctions the most of them were in the deep oceans Mm -hmm. it was not uh you know somehow some terrestrial animals did like mammals found a way to survive uh, why the dinosaurs went extinct but going back to that that third mass extinction where almost all life was was knocked out. You know, very few things like 93% of all life on earth was knocked out. Uh, it was only in the deep, deep oceans. So these, these types of animals like anglerfish and their relatives survived um, to, and then millions of years later through evolution, other creatures emerged and, you know, they're, it, so there's another reason to care. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Like they yeah. have uh, their evolutionary uh, uniqueness yeah. has has uh, outlasted. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Before we jump to evolution, let's just take a quick break and we'll be right back. All right. Welcome back. Evolution is going to be quick because, again, it, it's it's tough with fish because we can only go off what fossils we find some DNA studies, but also when you're talking about a deep, deep sea creature, not a lot known. Um, so I'll talk about what we do know. The The class is the ray-finned fishes. We, we've covered this from tuna to seahorses, the actinoterygy. 50% of all vertebrates are ray-finned fishes. <laughs> just, wow. That wow. stat always gets me. It's like, 50% of all mammals are like rodents, but 50% of all vertebrates alive are ray-finned fishes. So the fish actually dominate the planet, classification-wise. The order is the lophiaforms. Now, this is anglerfish. We're over 300 species. Now, it depends on what fish you're looking at. I really love this fan fish, sea devils. They are insane looking. The, there's a very famous photograph of one with the filaments. Uh, it went around popular, uh, the media. You can look at it, a sea devil or the fanfish sea devil. So all the families, genre, and species are going to differ. This one, the family is Coliferinidae. The genus is Coliferin. And then the species is Coliferin pelagica. Pelag- pelag- pelagica. Pelagica, I think. Anyways, it's a mouthful. There's over 300 species of them. But again, not a lot known. What we do know on fish evolution, we've covered this in some of our other species. The bony fish evolved over 530 million years ago. So that's when we had this Cambrian explosion. Talked about this, in, I think, in a shark podcast where it lasts around 25 million years, where we just see this explosion in life. 
But again, over 25 million years, not over 25 years or 25,000 years, 25 million. It's a long, long time, right? But that's where we saw life on earth really explode. And the bony fish really 420 million years ago is when they started to radiate out. Okay. And again, I always talk about this. We had fish in our oceans before we even had trees on land because trees trees didn't show up till 385 million years ago. It just boggles the mind, boggles Mm -hmm. the mind. Mm -hmm. Now, through some uh, DNA, mitochondrial DNA uh, analysis, anglerfish, they're thinking emerged maybe 130, 100 million years ago. So... Uh, that's about all I could find any specifics on when they evolved. So we still don't know a lot, but these are ancient, ancient animals. Not the most ancient that we've covered, but they're up there. They're up there. I'm trying to think what is the most ancient we've covered. <laughs> no, uh, okay. It was early on, I think. It might have been our first 50 episodes. It uh, Vampire squid? No, that was one of the deepest we've covered, I think, so far. Think something more basic biology than that, like just some of the most basic biology we've covered in in a species. Uh, Doesn't do much. Coral? Well, yeah, okay. You got me there. But (laughs) Uh, maybe even so fun. Um, Hold on. Let me, uh, let's see. Do we have any charades? Can I get a, can I get a hint? (laughs) It's okay. Dangly. They dangle. Oh, a jellyfish? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, the mortal jellyfish. Yeah, yeah. About 700 million years ago is when jellyfish, wow. some of the very first yeah, that complex makes sense life forms. Duh, yeah. they don't have, yeah, they don't have uh, a yeah. backbone. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But sharks, I mean, the sharks, the mantis shrimp, pretty That's old. That's right. Another invertebrate. Pretty ancient. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty ancient. Mantis shrimp have been around. Those things are amazing, too. So fun. Yeah. All right. A- a- anglerfish. Surprisingly, I was surprised. I thought, oh, this would be a short podcast. There's not a lot known. There's so much biology that we kind of do know about them. One of the things I did come up, a scientist that studies them says they can live up to be 30 years. I don't know how they they figured that out. Like you said, how they study them. It's not like you can tag them. I don't know how he came up with that statistics, but I did find that. So maybe. 20, 30 years, uh, how long deep sea, sea, deep sea creatures they can They take survive. a long time to uh, sexually mature, so okay. from what they know. Yeah. yeah. So that would make sense. Okay. Okay. Now, uh, bodies are elongated with weak, watery muscles. That was interesting. Well, they don't do much. No. They're not, not going <laughs> to win a swim race. No. They, they definitely <laughs> are, like you said, a swimming potato or a floating potato mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. They, they don't like to, to burn a lot. Because think about this. When we talk the physiology of the fish for the listeners, you have this deep part of the ocean with no sunlight. So their eyes are pretty weak. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't have really great vision because they don't need it. They do have vision though, because again, you, they've got to spot that bioluminescence to, to breed and, and reproduce. But you're at this bottom layer where there really is not a lot of available energy, food, 
Mm-hmm. There's no light energy. You have some thermal vents, right? But the anglerfish isn't developed depending on those. They're they're depending on whatever they can eat. Mm-hmm. So they have to be very, very, very careful how they burn energy. Yes, right? and yeah. and therefore they don't burn a lot of energy. Yeah. Um, in fact, their gill ventilation, so that's how they breathe in the water. Um, the genus Lophius has some of the slowest ven- ventilation cycles in all fish, and it can last more than 90 seconds. So very, very slow to breathe that water in and out. And then their movement, they, they do, they can cover long distances. And we'll talk about that when we get to reproduction. There is some data to suggest out there that a juvenile female anglerfish uh, recorded to move uh, over 800 kilometers. Uh, But a lot of that's basically vertically because Mm. they went after they spawn, they go to the top. Mm-hmm. And then they start to develop into larvae and then grow and then they come back down. So it's more ventral movement, may per se, more than like um, other type of movement. But as the adult anglerfish is hanging down, hanging out in the um, midnight or abysmal zone, they move slow. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, uh, there's video footage from uh, Monterey, California, filmed with an underwater vehicle, uh, and they watched this uh, this anglerfish swim for about 24 minutes. And most of it is footage is just of the anglerfish basically drifting, more yeah, or less, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, kind of at an angle. Uh, there was a little bit of swimming intermittently, but very, very small, short burst uh, and and basically only just to move, just barely beating its pectoral fins. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that was it. It just is just very lethargic looking behavior. And on a different dive, they observed a whip nose angler fish uh, showing this swimming upside down behavior. And it's pretty much motionless, but just like upside down, uh, tilted a little bit. And, Therefore, the um, the Ilysseum or the ang- the angler uh, was basically hanging upside down over its mouth as well, <laughs> and yeah, and then even when the, the um, when the vehicle approached because it does have some light yeah. on it, yeah, the fish bur- had a burst of speed to like move from it, yeah, but it was still swimming upside down. <laughs> That's crazy. So I, I mean, yeah, like this, why? This just, yeah, yeah. How? There's just yeah. not a lot of documented, you know, doc, documentation of what they do. Maybe swimming upside down is normal for anglerfish. We just don't have enough data. Um, now, they did take these scientists at, by surprise because they had not seen this yet. So yeah, it's just they. There's still a lot, a lot to learn. But they, they're not. They're definitely not moving very quickly and no, probably the no. only time they move quickly is when they're snapping their jaws shut on some of their prey items. Okay. So uh, to, to break some of that down, swimming upside down, one of the things I did read about, like especially with the deep sea fish is be- because we're going to talk about their swim bladders here in a sec. And that's what helps fish in the, uh, the, the light zones, uh, buoyancy controls mm-hmm. up and down, right? The gases. Well, you can't mm-hmm. have gas in a in a swim bladder in the deep sea due to that pressure it would crush it so uh anglerfish 
uh, don't have swim bladders from what I, what I read. But some fish down there do have swim bladders that contain oil. Okay, so it's, it's a thick, viscous fluid, not gas, that helps them go up and down. They do have, however, autoliths, which I think you mentioned this in some sort of podcast about fish. But that is the ear stones in the ears that helps hearing and vestibular function in fish. Their inner ear, that tells them which way is up and down. So for a fish to be swimming upside down, it's not because they can't tell which way is up or down. It's They're doing it for a reason. They can tell that they're upside down, but maybe they're just, I don't, who knows, a hunt stra- hunting strategy maybe? Researchers do not know. Yeah. And of course, like all good research, it would need to be seen again and repeated and recorded and all that. But just, yeah, just a lot of fun mysteries with these guys still. Yeah. And I mean, and so when you're talking about them not swimming, the basic biology, right? In, in, in basic biology, uh, we need food to power muscles, right? So you need nutrients and oxygen to to power those muscles. So in a tuna, the fastest, one of the, the fastest fish in the sea, I think it was, super, super fast, always swimming super fast. And they had the, the red and white muscles. And we talked about that in that episode, amazing episode, learned so much about fish in that one. Uh, but they're in the, the lighted zone, but they're swimming really quick. They're getting a lot of a lot of uh, oxygen across their their gills. They're eating a lot, so they're getting fat, and that's carrying food to the the musculature. Anglerfish, they don't eat often, and they don't have a lot of nutrients, so that's why they don't barely move, or they don't have to. Uh, would you say oxygenate their gills very much because of the energy? Right, it's all about energy every day. You and I were talking about it before we started. I need to lose a little bit of energy in my diet. <laughs> so you stop it. <laughs> okay, but I saw pictures of you in Fiji. You're doing fine. <laughs> yeah, I had fun looking for birds. So now the other thing about these fish, Angie, that I wanted to talk about before we get to bioluminescence, because I know you're itching to get there. The skeletal structure. When you look at the skeleton of an anglerfish, like I said, they're all mouth. It depends on the species, obviously, but for most of them, all mouth, all head, a really curvature, weird backbone, and then a little bit in their fins. They, they are just, they are, like I said, like we started at the beginning, goblin, thing of nightmares. They're crazy. They have this. The, this huge mouse with these teeth, and and one thing I you, you did talk about, you know, nutrition and, and catching prey, and but an I'll, underbite, I think, is yeah, describe with that lower jaw, the mandible. Oh, and it's just oh, they're so they're just so radical. But the other thing I read about their teeth, Angie, this was really interesting. I didn't think about this. Is it's like a scientist said, it's like spike guards in a parking lot. So they're. Their prey can go in, but not come out. Definitely can't come out. Yeah, yeah. It was just oh, it was crazy. Their 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 physiology is just beyond beyond. Now, the big part, the bioluminescence. Yes, yes, so <laughs> fun. Big, yes. And and actually, just in prepping for this podcast, too, just being being reminded that I mean, so many species bioluminesce, not just this, uh, not you know, not not necessarily just the anglerfish or the the uh, 
uh, firefly, as I mentioned. I mean, there's, uh, I mean, dozens and dozens of species uh, produce bioluminescence and uh, from bacteria to sponges to worms to jellyfish, crustaceans, squid, mm-hmm. sharks, and even terrestrial species like fireflies. I think the, they're finding out that the platypus has some of it. Oh, wow. Uh, mm-hmm. And so what it is, is it's this convergent evolution. And so several different lines of species realize what an awesome what an awesome benefit it can be depending on where they live and how they catch prey and how they attract mates to have this uh this bioluminescence or basically this chemical reaction uh somewhere inside their body that causes uh light to be produced, right? The photoprotein mm-hmm. light. And so, Chris, I was trying to remember back to which species um, produce bioluminescence that we've covered. And I think definitely the vampire squid, which was a long, long time ago, that invertebrate. But the vampire squid, I believe, uh, bioluminesced through its, its own chemical reaction within its cells. And what happens is there's this protein called luciferin and another one called luciferase. And when luciferin is oxidized uh, by a catalyst or a specific enzyme that's around, it can produce this photoprotein, which is known as luciferase uh, or light, basically. And so a lot of the organisms like the vampire squid have those chemicals themselves within their skin um, or within whatever fleshy tissue that they are going to bioluminesce with. But the anglerfish is different, okay? And so their source of luminescence doesn't come from their own tissues and their own DNA, if you will. It comes from a symbiotic bacteria that hangs out in the, basically that the, the tip, the fleshy part of the esca or the ilcium uh, and just hangs out in there. And these bacteria have the certain... Cr- crystals that contain, uh, researchers think they contain guanine, the amino acid guanine, and have their own reaction inside of their own bodies. And so inside the bacteria. And the bacteria then hangs out in the tissue of the of the anglerfish. And so it's super fascinating because uh, what the researchers are starting to explore, and they've really known so little about this because as we mentioned earlier, earlier that the anglerfish are so hard to study and a lot of times they're just looking at samples that have washed up on shore. Uh, But that the anglerfish cannot produce light on their own. They cannot bioluminesce. It's this bacteria. But what's really been making the scientists scratch their heads for a long, long time is basically how they get this bacteria. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So are they born with this bacteria or the, are the bacteria in the ocean swimming around? And so far the answers they think is no. Like when they sample water down there, they're not finding these bioluminescent bacteria. They're only finding it inside of the, the esca or the angler uh, mm. part of the anglefish. But it's really puzzling is that as the anglerfish are growing into adulthood, they don't necess- they don't have the ability to bioluminesce. So they don't think they have the bacteria then, or they're not sure. And so what they've, uh, the most recent studies from 2022, uh, I believe, have shown that they are able to acquire bacteria later in life, 
uh, in the, the end of the esca or the ischium has little pores in it, the tissue down there. And so researchers think that maybe that maybe some fish that are adults will like spew out the bacteria when they're breeding maybe. And then that way when juveniles are coming into adult age and starting to need these uh, photo, these bioluminescent bacteria, that then they somehow take them in and then they use them from there. But why they're not able to find any in the open water, they don't know. But as you mentioned, there's so much we don't know about down there as far as species being explored what'd you say like i mean 90 we still have 90 percent of, of species yeah. so it might just be that they haven't actually been able to, to sample in the water or around and they've just only found it in these adult anglerfish uh but without it the anglerfish could not bioluminesce because the bacteria are the ones doing doing it so it's this very symbiotic uh happy Happy bacteria, and they think that, of course, the back, um, basically the anglerfish is providing a nice tissue home, uh, source of food and, and all that for uh, source of energy and what the bacteria needs to just hang out there and be happy under the water. Yeah, it's like what came first, the chicken or the egg? I mean, it's it's when you start really thinking about it, you understand biology. You're like, where did this bacteria come? I know, and and like there was yeah. like lots, multiple papers. Like I'm basically yeah. giving you a synopsis of multiple papers of different ways they've studied this and tried to figure it out, and different genomes they've sequenced. And yeah, it's really, it's just, a, it's a, it's a really fun puzzle. Well, uh, yeah, the, yeah, it's it's, it's fascinating, right? It Science, is. it's crazy. It is biology this, this, is insane. This fish is just crazy. Now, okay, so part a lot of the behaviors they're hunting behavior. So you know, I'll let you uh, opine about about that. But before we get there, I think we should take just another quick break, and then we'll bring this home. All right, welcome back. So the angler fish, what we do know, very few predators, just because not finding humans. Them. Yes, humans are one, but they they've been found in in some stomachs of some fish, but not very common. And again, they live very very deep. Now we know these are predators of the deep. They're ambush predators, so they really. Uh, use that angle angler or whatever their their what is it ilcium again yeah ilcium or esca Mm -hmm. okay the esca to now this is the deep sea ones the ones on the continental shelf will sit and and wait and just wiggle that thing if you watch some of the videos that they have of them online they're really they're really cool use it like a little worm but the deep ones with that bacteria that's illuminating and they're using it back and forth, like Angie said, to lure fish. They eat almost anything they can get in, which is crazy because their their stomachs are what they can eat prey almost the, the same size as them. Yes, twice. Uh, no, uh, twice as large. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's insane. <laughs> they're like all stomach and mouth, mm-hmm. and. Besides the freeloading males, it was a funny comment from a scientist, you know, because the parasitic mating, but the the females have these massive bulging stomachs. But what's interesting is they lure them in, Angie, and they have the fastest sucking prey air suction that they've measured in any fish, which is 0.006 seconds. 
So it's called suction feeding. The anglerfish is the king. They have the fastest in the world. I know when we talked about mantis shrimp and what they can do, um, these ones, they open their mouths so quickly and it just, it just, the fish has no chance. It's just, or the e- or the eel, well, I don't even know eel, but the squid or whatever they eat, just boom. And it's in their stomach or in their mouth. They close that mouth. They can't get out. And then they swallow it. It's just, it's just nuts. It's just nuts. It's so fun. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I was reading, they of course uh, have fish, but lobster, mm. uh, shrimp, invert other invertebrates, cod. Uh, they've found seabirds in their stomach. I mean, just all sorts of <laughs> like anything, yeah. really. They're definitely yeah. a, a carnivore. That's for sure. But also several specimens have wa- washed up on shore with nothing in their stomach. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. that suggests that there might be certain months or times a year where they're not feeding that much, yeah, yeah. Uh, depending on where they live and how, how deep they live. All right. So leading to other behaviors into this reproductive behavior, which is insane. What do we know? <sighs> Wow. Well, <laughs> so uh, one of my favorite uh, titles uh, for talking about the sexual paratism of the anglerfish is first and foremost, the anglerfish is the only creature that's been thus identified that is known to mate in this uh, sexual parasitism way that I'm going to talk about here. So that's another reason why to care. Um, and and um, we'll talk about that. Uh, but one title was Evolution turned this fish into a penis with a heart. <laughs> that <laughs> that's, was one title from an article. I don't. I can't remember which uh, which um, which uh, uh, science magazine it was from, but it really made me crack up. And so, well, yeah, yeah. It, it it's I I read like you know watching the, some of the specials on it and the research that it's just basically they end up being just a pair of gonads that are providing. The yes. Gametes yes, I think it was the famous biologist Stephen Jay Gould, which I studied mm-hmm. a lot. In, yes, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. In zoology many years ago, but yeah, I think he's the one that coined it a penis with a heart. The male, the male anglerfish, <laughs> yeah, yeah. so funny. But I mean, to back that up a little bit is, and so to explain uh, how this is done, the sexual parasitism in the anglerfish is. Keep in mind that there's over 300 species of anglerfish, and they've really only identified about 25 species to engage in this sexual parasitism. And what ends up happening is, as Chris mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, the males are super small, like a fraction of the size of females. In fact, for so many years, hundreds of years when, when anglerfish had been identified because they'd washed up on shore, the biologists at the classifying them at the time just thought that it was some type of little parasite that they had on them. And then finally they realized that they're only having female specimens wash up and they didn't understand where the males were. And I think it was in the early 1900s, um, a biologist finally realized uh, from one of these specimens that that was not a parasite, that that was actually the male fish that was attached to the female. And so what they've learned in the past 100 years about this breeding strategy uh, with these species of anglerfish is what happens is this male is born and a lot of these males don't really have teeth. They don't eat any food. They literally, once they 
grow uh, big enough, they just start swimming and searching around for a female anglerfish. And researchers think that they use, um, they have a really good sense of taste and um, chemoreception. And so the female doll anglerfish is putting out pheromones into the water. And if a male is lucky enough um, to find that scent, that trail, and then of course uses eyes that are poorly developed, but still uses eyes to see her bioluminesce, uh, he can basically find a female. And it's estimated that uh, for anglerfish, that only 1% of males that are hatched actually find a female. So these poor guys, they they swim <laughs> their whole life. And uh, a lot of them end up just like 99% of male anglerfish that utilize mm-hmm. sexual parasitism die not eating a meal because they never found the female yep. to share with them. So it's just crazy. Um, but what happens is they swim around. And then if he is lucky enough, he's if he's that 1% of a male that can find a female of the same species, it can't be a different species, obviously, the young male will uh, bite on to the female with his sharp teeth. And then once he bites onto the female... It's really fascinating, um, but he actually has special enzymes in his mouth that can start to dissolve the tissue, the, the tissue. And the enzyme will keep eating away at the female's tissue basically until it reaches the blood vessel level. And then this is where this love connection comes in, where the male and female become physically connected at the circulatory level. So they start to have a shared circulatory system. <laughs> it's like he dissolves, right? Mm-hmm. He dissolves into her and connects. Mm-hmm. Where it's insane. It's so nuts. Once their circulatory systems fuse, the female will provide him with nutrients that he needs to survive uh, and basically is a parasite and just steals nutrients through the circula- shared circulatory system. Uh, and he will stay attached to her potentially for years. Uh, and while he's attached to her, he doesn't have to worry about swimming or seeing or eating or anything else that a normal fish has. So all of those body parts that he doesn't need anymore, some of the fins, the eyes, the internal organs, they basically <laughs> atrophy, right? So they, they wither away until basically he's, just this little lump of flesh hanging from the female, uh, taking food from her. He does keep his gills. So he, I guess he is oxygenating himself theoretically. Um, he basically becomes testes and gills and hangs out there. And the testes are there to produce sperm, uh, whenever she spawns. So gills and testes, right? It, it, it defies logic. I, I, we have PhDs in reproductive biology. Like, I've never seen this. I've never seen this in a textbook. No. I've every mind species, blown this week, Chris. Mind every blown species mm-hmm. we've covered. Like, there's always something like, oh, this is so cool. I would have never in my life would have guessed this no. as a mating strategy for mm-hmm. some sort of, mm-hmm. you know. Okay, worms or or anthropods or or some of these insects. You know, I don't know. I you know, 
that's beyond me sometimes. And I know there's some cool mating stuff with there and, and whatnot, but for a fish, a vertebrate, a, a, a more complex organism to do something like this is insane. It's insane. It's beyond. It's crazy. And I have yeah. so many questions. I had so many questions mm-hmm. about it and I'll probably only be able to answer a couple mm-hmm. uh, f- for the audience because I'm still learning about this. And I just, I, I mean, I know, I know what my reading will look like for the next couple of weeks. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. But uh, it's just fascinating. And I mean, there's different strategies. Once again, this is just about 25 of the species. There are other species that the male will only attach for a little while but he won't fully, he'll just bite onto her and hang out for a while. He won't actually, their circulatory systems won't fuse. Fuse, yeah. And then he'll, after spawning, he'll like let go. And so, I mean, there's, I have a lot of questions about it, but the number one is like, well, why? And why evolve the strategy? It seems pretty dramatic and taxing, um, taxing for the female to carry around the male. Right. And, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. cause she's also, if you think about it, she's keeping this little wormy but, male but alive, but she's it isn't also just growing, one, right? It isn't just one. Correct. Let's, let's, so th- let's add that to, to, to what you're saying. Mm-hmm. There isn't just one male, right? <laughs> there's more than one. There's been reports of up to eight. Uh, one female <laughs> was um, uh, captured, I believe, having eight males fused to her. Okay, now go through swimming mm-hmm. with eight males mm-hmm. <laughs> connected mm-hmm. to you. No, Insane. thank you. And th- and then <laughs> not only the eight males, but uh, a female that is spawning spends a lot of her energy and a lot of her body size producing mm-hmm. her eggs, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So she's putting a lot of a, a lot to these males and her children. I mean, she is just it's amazing that she can have enough nutrition to stay alive her own self uh, with these uh, with these with these parasites, basically, right? Because we always joke that um, you know uh, embryo um, embryos growing into fetuses are somewhat of an alien parasitite, right? Taking the mother's nutrition. Mm -hmm. And so granted, it's not parasitism in this sense, um, but in in some ways it is. And so just super fascinating. And so that, and so why I think the researchers have, um, have theorized that the benefit that the female's getting is that whenever she does spawn uh, and, and lays her eggs, Fish reproduce uh, with external fertilization, right? Like the male, the female lays the eggs, and then the male, the male releases his sperm, and then the magic of life happens externally outside of the fish's body. Except and some that, what some sharks do internal, right? We've covered some of that. Yeah, but it's not technically. I mean, there's internal. some clo- there's clo- there's like cloaca to cloaca. Yeah. Um, but he's basically yeah depositing like a sperm ball. In her, yeah. I believe. Um, so, but it's not. It's not like a uterus or something. In correct. There. Yeah, 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 yes. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but yes. But some species of shark yeah. definitely give uh, live birth. So yeah, the the yeah. embryos develop inside um, the female shark, and then and then hatch and come out as like whole yeah. sharks, yeah, which yeah, is yeah. a great strategy to keep keep her babies alive longer because we all know that the eggs that even when after they're fertilized, I mean, a huge percent of those are gobbled up by yep. predators, right? Yeah. Yep. Um, Finding Nemo from the beginning. Mm-hmm. It's the very beginning of the movie. So, and yeah. yeah. And so the researchers speculate that basically it's so hard 
in these deep, dark waters, it's so hard for male and female to find each other anyways because they yeah. can't see each other and mm-hmm. it's so spread out and so deep that if they're lucky enough to find each other, that the male just attaches so his sperm is there whenever she spawns, mm-hmm. um, whenever she needs it. And it, for her, yes, it's a parasitic loss because she's giving him some of her own nutrients and it's hard to find food down there, as we mentioned. Mm-hmm. But the trade-off is that when she does spawn, her eggs, when she does spawn, have basically sperm laying, waiting right there. And they think that um, of when a female is ready to spawn, her hormones will change inside of her body, uh, gearing up to spawn and lay those eggs, release those eggs. And so because they are fused with the circulatory system, right, to, uh, together, the male and the female, that her change in hormones depending on whether it's she spawns seasonally or researchers still don't know with all the different species um, how they spawn, their spawning patterns, but that the hormones in her body talk to the hormones in his body because he will release he he has to he has one job for goodness sakes yeah, <laughs> he it. has one job literally Finder. yep <laughs> and so he when it is go time and uh, those eggs or ova have been released by the female he has to release his sperm um, at the same time and and uh, researchers I think have seen have documented that and know that he, that the male is able to do that and so they think it must be um, some horm- some hormone communication between this few species which I guess that would be a benefit right um, so that is the like why they do it uh, but I dove a little bit deeper into the how they do that because Chris and I um, during our tenure at UF and just uh, wanting to know more about reproduction and reproductive immunology. Chris mm-hmm. had a huge interest in that um, and studying basically and how the mom doesn't basically reject the, the fetus, fetus. Yep, yep. because the fetus is going to have a different immune system than the mom. And so technically our, we're, yeah, we are all born with this immune system to attack anything that's foreign, anything that has foreign DNA or RNA, viruses, mm-hmm. bacteria, think about that, that are innate and then are um, our adaptive immune system kick into gear. And so there's a whole bunch of really cool um, reproductive immune factors that go into how, and for vertebrates and land mammals and how they, and uh, how they don't reject their own fetuses. And so a lot of that has to do with the MHCs, uh, major histocompatibility um, complexes. And, just a, a whole bunch of science behind that that is really, really cool. And Chris dove really deep. I remember we were working on a review paper for it. So that's what got me thinking about, well, how the heck can a male, how can a male latch on and share blood with a female when he has a totally different um, immunogenetics, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, if we think about it too, if you think about like um, – when people get um, are donated another organ or a donor or skin yep. graft, those matches have to be put together really, really, really carefully. Um, so the person that's receiving the organ or the skin graft or whatever does not reject it. Yeah, so, and, we, so we can learn mm-hmm. again. We can learn a lot from this fish, right? You know mm. I mean, and it goes back to a couple of weeks ago. I mean, again, that's why I got into the whole mammoth cloning thing and trying to identify recipients, but. Yeah, so technically she should 
reject these males. Like they should not be. She's not related blood. to them, right? Yeah, they should not, should not be sharing blood. No, 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 not at all. And so it's fascinated researchers. And so there is a lot of, uh, there's a fair amount of research into this because we do have so much that we could potentially learn from it for our own biomedicine and just in general. I mean, it's just it's incredible, and it's it's never been seen before in the animal kingdom. They're the only ones that do this that we know of to such intense levels or as we mentioned with eight males i mean it's one thing to figure out how to work with one male i live with one but eight you have three little ones that are happy forget about oh my gosh but at least you know so at least yeah i share i share genetics with them yeah yeah yeah, yeah. gosh so Yeah. yeah it's just so fascinating and there was recently um a study produced in the journal science which is that goes to show you it's a very top tier journal and so in this new study Researchers analyzed the genomes of 10 different species of anglerfish, including those that fuse permanently, where the male and, feel, male and female stay fused uh, indefinitely, compared to ones that only partially fuse. And what they found is fascinating. And so in the species of anglerfish where they permanently fuse, like the female with the eight males fused to her, swimming around, poor thing, um, that there is a whole part of their immune system basically lacking. And so it's just blew these researchers' minds because what they found is that their adaptive immunity or the one that they acquire over time was pretty much gone. Uh, And what instead is they had a beefed up innate immune system. And so just for our listeners out there is like in general, immunologists classify our immune system into the innate immune system, which you're born with. And that is going to protect you from definitely different microbes and um, things that can affect like your skin and your gut and your mucous membranes. And it's really fast acting and it's just, it'll pretty much attack anything foreign in your body. Whereas the adaptive immune system is the second layer of defense. Uh, you're n- not born with it. You have to acquire it over in time. Uh, it includes like the B and T cells or the antibodies, uh, and it's specific. So it targets specific uh, viruses and specific bacteria. And you're, that's what basically how vaccines work. So it's it's trained. It's slower to respond. As in, in humans, it doesn't respond for a couple of days typically, but it learns. Uh, and so what the researchers are finding with these anglerfish that where the male fuses to the female, is this the second layer of defense, this adaptive immune system, B and T cells? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The genes for that in these fish are pretty much lacking. Yeah, and it, I mean, it makes it makes sense. Think about it. They if if they did have one that was developing a more robust a robust immune system, it would reject the males and they couldn't breed. So, right, they kind of have this prehistoric. I don't know, or just I, very well, basic. Yeah, thing. yeah, and I mean, and the innate immune system does it does contain a lot of white blood cells that are are known to once again just pretty much attack anything that mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. that it doesn't get along with. Um, so. How the female's body is still not at least 
the innate her innate immune system is not necessarily attacking the males. Uh, they don't fully understand that. Um, but in the same instance, uh, she doesn't have all these multiple, multiple layers. And so that's probably yeah. allowing him to be there in some way, shape, or form. But still a lot that they don't know. Just seeing seeing that was very shocking. Um, but then also seeing that they had a beefed up innate immune system, right? I mean, yeah. that's fascinating. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. How, how, they, how they changed that. And so still at the very beginning of learning about this, which um, I hope in the next yeah, five or ten years we'll – learn a lot more about it in some, in, in some ways, shapes and form might be able to help us humans in our biomedical journey with some of these um, organ donors and just uh, learning more about this, the science of um, the immune system and immune response. And yeah, it's just, it's, in, it's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. And that's how you write research grants and get funded and go out in the big deep ocean. So any of our listeners looking for a career, there you go. I mean, going out there exploring things like that that you you will find research money if it applies to people so uh yeah yeah well yeah exactly really ex- i mean it's really exciting i was excited to see that many papers about that i know we need to protect our uh the bottoms the deep deep dark bottoms of our oceans better and we'll talk more of that when we get to conservation but it is hopeful that yeah there would be some interest and some funding in there um and not just people that are uh, going down to look for um, places to mine, yeah. but actually researchers, yeah. or at least maybe even pairing up, uh, yeah. Yeah. worst case scenario. All right. So we get the males. We understand how they kind of work. Now, uh, uh, eggs, what do we, do we know anything? How many spawning, all that stuff? Well, yeah, Chris, there's still a lot to learn, but what we do know in general is because the male is attached to the female, um, or even in species where he's not, he is prepared year-round to breed, uh, where the female's ovaries only produce eggs typically in November to May, depending on where they live. Uh, But in general, spawning is not really well described. Uh, It is external, like I said. And it is pretty cool when a female anglerfish, uh, when she produces her eggs, uh, they're pretty big and they're buoyant and they are in this long, uh, veiled, gelatinous ribbon. And this ribbon of eggs can be really long and it's also translucent. And so the eggs are kept basically protected mm-hmm. um, in this gelatinous coating, this ribbon. Uh, researchers think that it might be um, toxic or just tasteful to predators, so they think that that will help them. And the exact number of eggs is unknown, but researchers estimate anywhere from 300,000 to close to 3 million eggs um, in, the, in this string, this gelatinous string ribbon that's a couple meters long. So mm-hmm. really pretty, a sight to be seen. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, the male's there, and so he is going to, uh, his, uh, his sperm should fertilize the eggs. And there was one researcher that collected a ribbon of about 50 fertilized eggs and was able to um, grow them in a lab for a little over a week. But it's estimated that um, after fertilization, because it's so cold and so slow moving down there that basically it can take, you know, three weeks or so um, for basically the eggs to develop into larval um, and basically hatch. And that also the ribbon floats slowly to the top of the water 
as well. Um, and assuming that they're not eaten along the way or stuff like that, uh, that then the, the small larval fish will hatch and they're up at the top of the water. And it's estimated that they, the little fish grow, uh, around 13.6 centimeters per year. So they're pretty slow growing mm-hmm. and then they have to make their way back down, um, to where they, you know, depending on which species they are, uh, how deep into the ocean they go to live their adult life. But, uh, for sexual maturity in angler fish, uh, males are going to be around six years old and females are going to be about 14 years old. Well, I guess they do based- live long, yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's all based on size. So the faster they grow, if there's more food, theoretically, the faster they sexually mature. So these, you know, these are, these are ranges, but it's all based on their length. And so it takes them, they're very slow growing, especially down in those depths with not a lot of food in the cold water, cold, dark water. And so it takes them a while to mature. And then uh, if, I guess if you're a male of one of these uh, sexual parasitic uh, types of species. Um, I, I, I couldn't find any data on if they're swimming around not eating for six years or if, if or if they find a female sooner than that. I'm not sure how long it takes their, mm-hmm. their testes uh, to develop. So still lots of questions. But yeah, lots of them. Yeah. Fascinating. No, it's <laughs> this fish. Oh, it's just all incredible. I know. This is so incredible. So I know. I really didn't think uh, this podcast would go this long. I did not. (laughs) But the more I dug into it. Have you not met you and I? (laughs) No, but the more I I, I dove deeper and deeper. Oh, yeah. It's so fun. We pick pick a species and then we go and look at the literature and, you know, we go to, you know, the different uh, uh, information sites that we use and all those things. And, you know, you dig on some species and there's just not a lot there. And, and we, we, you know, to come up with a podcast, we, we come up with, you know, we get as much information as we can on this one. I thought, Oh, no way. It's such a deep sea fish, but wow. The stuff we do know, I, I would love to learn how they learned it, but it opens up all these other doors of scientific inquiry. All right. So conservation don't know of any angler fish that are endangered, but the scientists said that doesn't mean they, they, they can't be. We don't know. Again, like I've laid out in the beginning, we don't know a lot, a lot about the deep ocean. Definitely climate change is a threat to these fish. Uh, it's increasing ocean stratification. So that means the, the surface water isn't mixing with the deep ocean. So less oxygen's making it down there. That is a major, major concern. We do know overfishing is having a negative effect across the ocean and up and down the food chain or up and down the food or all throughout the food webs, ocean acidification. uh, But really these low oxygen zones in the ocean are really what is concerning scientists in those deep sea food webs. So, and if that the deep sea goes or species can't survive down there, then we are in deep, deep, deep trouble. You know, it affects all the species from the deep all the way to the surface. So again, you know, tip of the week, you know, go back to plastic free July, go back to reducing our carbon footprints. It's, it's the same story throughout, but any organizations out there, I, I imagine there isn't a anglerfish conservation society or something, but there is a lot of good work going on in the oceans. 
There isn't to my knowledge, but maybe uh, one of our listeners will create one or yeah. a fan page or something. These guys are just really amazing, and we need to get we need to get their fix- pictures uh, circulating more in social media, and definitely get their their name and their biology. Mm-hmm. Ugh, this, we need we need to be talking about sexual paratism at Thanksgiving over yeah. the holidays. <laughs> there we go. There we go. <laughs> it's so fascinating, right? I know. Uh, and so. Anyways, uh, but I did find a group called the Deep Sea Conservation Coalition, and they can be found at www.savethehighseas.org, and we'll put it on our show notes, of course. Uh, The Deep Sea Conservation Coalition, also known as the DSCC, was founded in 2004 in response to international concerns over the harmful impacts of deep sea bottom trawling. And so, as we were talking about a little bit earlier, and so this conservation group is today includes over 100 non-government organizations, uh, fish organizations, law and policy institutes worldwide that work together um, basically under the umbrella of the DSCC to protect these deep sea vulnerable, vulnerable ecosystems. And their main goals are to sustain to substantially reduce the great threats to life in these deep sea uh, places and to safeguard the long-term health, integrity, and resilience of these deep sea ecosystems that we don't even know a lot about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they have several initiatives that they're working on. Of course, uh, a, a big one is protecting these high seas from bottom trawling. And of course, protecting some of these species down there from the impacts of bottom fishing and working with international governments and uh, policy workers and scientists to get this done. So check out their website at savethehighseas.org. You can also follow them on Instagram and they have a nice Facebook page, which I think I sent you the link earlier, Chris. Yes, Uh, I know. uh, about New Zealand. I know. I have to dig into that. We're, we're usually leading the world in a lot of green policy, but that one was a little concerning, the deep sea trawling. And I think yeah, it's they're one of the only ones that are allowing it in the South Pacific. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. yeah uh, but that's what the Deep Sea Conservation Coalition is all about, uh, helping educate us and then also uh doing doing the work that uh needs to be done that we did you know basically until i did this podcast i i i wasn't really educated on um bottom bottom trawling or sea mine exploring and stuff like that and i didn't know the and i didn't know these creatures lived down there and i definitely didn't know that the oceans had 90 percent of species probably still to identify so I'm in love with this midnight zone and mm-hmm. um, I hope this podcast helped get everyone excited about it and uh, definitely, definitely check out Deep Sea Conservation Coalition or www.savethehighseas.org. Well, I think we're definitely going to be coming back uh, in, in, in a while, but we're definitely coming back to the deep sea because there are some amazing creatures down there. And I think we need to learn more about, like I could see doing the giant squid soon. So there's a hint for one species nice. <laughs> before yeah. we, I, before we wait for plastic free July, cause that's when we go nuts on, on the deep or on the oceans. But Angie, great work this week. It it was a a fun, fun species to investigate. I hope the listeners really enjoyed and learning. Please keep those emails coming, comments on social media. If there's species, you you know, um, you want us to do, please uh, 
email us, contact us. Uh, please always check out Patreon. You're helping to give back. That's five bucks a month. That's a, that's a coffee at Starbucks. Starbucks is probably right. Prices are going up. So less than a Starbucks cup of coffee. Uh, but thank you so much for listening and sharing and caring. Thank you, everyone. Happy Halloween. Listen, learn, share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com.